0: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
1: Huntstand's Make Your Mark podcast is powered by, you guessed it, Huntstand, the number one hunting and land management app. Huntstand's powerful mapping features and revolutionary hunting tools will give you the confidence and knowledge for a safe and successful hunt. There's three different tiers that you can choose from. We've got a free version, and then you've got Pro and Pro Whitetail. Pro will give you access to premium map layers and hunting tools in the United States and Canada, where Pro Whitetail includes all Hunt Stand Pro features plus powerful tools made specifically for Whitetail hunters. If you want to check it out, download Hunt Stand today. I love each and every one of these episodes and the guests that we get on here. If you're new or a longtime listener, Don't forget, you might be listening but not subscribed. We have some awesome guests coming on in the future, so if you don't want to miss out on those when they go live, and if you want to support the show, press subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Today's podcast is brought to you by Savage Arms. Savage Arms is five generations of craftspeople using stripped-back, supercharged American ingenuity to make the most reliable and accurate, modern, high-performance firearms. To learn more, head to savagearms.com. Ladies and gents, welcome to today's episode. we got a killer episode lined up with two absolute legends in the game. First, we've got Brian Murphy, the VP of Strategic Partnerships at HuntStand. Brian's a wildlife guru, speaker, writer, and the former CEO of the Quality Deer Management Association. Basically, he's a guy you want dropping knowledge bombs when it comes to white-tailed deer management. Riding Shotgun with Brian is our own Josh Dauke, content director for HuntStand, a true blue outdoorsman who's seen sunrises and sunsets on three different continents. He's not just your run-of-the-mill hunter, he's a multi-species maestro and a bona fide expert in the woods. Today's episode is going to be an interesting ride as we tackle the ethical side of high hunting and bust some Texas hunting myths wide open. Plus, we just got back from a killer South Texas hunting tour, and you're gonna get some info on this two-part HuntStand original film that we'll launch later this summer on this exact topic. So grab a seat, kick back, and get ready for an epic chat as we welcome Brian Murphy and Josh Daukey. Well, there's no problem.
2: I'm excited to be here, man. I've I've been looking forward to recapping this with you guys. I know I've been talking to a lot of people about the the trip for well ever since we got back, and I'm honestly still kind of like
1: trying to take it all in myself. So we got a lot to talk about. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do, because where we got to go, not a whole lot of people are ever gonna get to see. So I consider us very fortunate and lucky, all thanks to Brian for setting the whole thing up. So Brian, just kind of I mean, kick it off for us. I mean, you, you set this whole thing up for us, man.
3: Yeah. Several months ago, Josh reached out and, and uh, you know, indicated that he wanted to do a deep dive into the history and culture of deer hunting and management in South Texas. And that was a welcome challenge for me because it's, it's an area that I've spent a good part of my, my life and my career uh, and my free time. Uh, Because I love love the place, and you know, I started as a wildlife graduate student many years ago in deep South Texas. Got to work on some cool research projects, and then later uh, moved out east to Georgia and started working with the Quality Deer Management Association. But never left my Texas roots, and so we formed a relationship with the King Ranch and some other uh, folks down there at Texas A and M Kingsville to continue helping and being part of the research. So I've spent you know trips every year for thirty plus years, and developed a great friend network, uh, people who I respect as my mentors, as the leaders of deer management over the last 50 years in many cases. Uh, And so, you know, it was a pretty easy task for me because I just really called on the same friends that I call on just about every year for the loops that I do down there. But, uh, but I was excited to share that with a couple of one, a native Texan yourself, Mm -hmm. uh, who's just never understood and got to meet some of these players. And then also Josh from Minnesota Who's been to Texas and hunted it, but really didn't understand in, in, in the big picture, I guess, of how it all fit together and kind of the historical significance. So yeah, we had a, an eight day. I called it the Texas crawl. Uh, it was more of a, a sprint between some places, but we covered a lot of a lot of ground. Met a lot of the key players, the most influential people, in my opinion, over the last five decades of kind of why we are where we are in South Texas and why it's so special.
1: Talk to us about who you lined up for us and some of the places you got us on.
3: Yeah. Again, very fortunate. I've got tremendous friends down there and, and, and they all did it as a favor and because, you know, we share the same passion and they wanted to share their knowledge, their places uh, with, with our audience, which is fantastic. So the doors were open to us. You know, we got to meet the famous Al brothers who I first met, you know, in the, in the mid eighties um, for those that may not know the name um, hopefully you will after this he published a book in 1975 called Producing Quality Whitetails. And that was truly the beginning of the what we now know as the quality deer management movement. Uh, it ultimately spored, spurred, spurred the formation of the Quality Deer Management Association, which I spent 20 something years with. But anyway, now, you know, millions of hunters adhere to these principles. That's where it started mm-hmm. with Al Brothers. Uh, he's now in his 80s, uh, owns a, a, a ranch there in, in, uh, in, in Southeast Texas, which we got to go to and spent two days with Al and storytelling of the days. is just incredible. I consider him a, a mentor and a friend. Uh, we got to meet an equally influential person, uh, Dr. Charlie DeYoung, who was the research piece of this whole thing we now know as deer research and management in South Texas. He's also uh, now retired professor emeritus from Texas A&M Kingsville. But he uh, you know he was the one that started all the research that kind of supported the philosophy that al brothers the biologist yeah. ha- had started to advocate so i consider them sort of you know a1 and ab when it comes to you know who, who's the most important now they're really a package deal uh we got to go to the king ranch um i've got good relationships there i've got to participate in research for a dozen years on the ranch got to meet uh, their area wildlife manager and their ceo uh, again, very supportive of, of all of what we, we believe in as, as hunters and conservationists. Uh, got to go to a, you know, one of the premier private ranches in South Texas called the Comanche, uh, 113,000 acre, little postage stamp of a place down there near the Mexico border. Probably has one of the finest, you know, buck age structures that I've ever seen in my entire career. Uh, got to, you know, meet uh, one of the, probably the preeminent uh, whitetail consultant in South Texas, Dr. Mickey Hellickson former student of mine, and some of the guys even got to ride in the helicopter and do an official deer survey from the helicopter, which is pretty fun if you haven't ever been part of something like that. Uh, we got to tour the Texas A&M, Cesar Clayberg Deer Research Facility, which is where a lot of this cutting-edge stuff takes place. Mm-hmm. So to say we got a lot done, we also met with, you know, Alan Kane, the big game program leader for Texas Parks and Wildlife, and got the agency's perspective. Uh, so, you know... It, I can say we did a a lot in a in a short period of time and, and really hit the who's who of people and places. And by the way, I also got to do a little hunting, which was a good bit of fun.
1: Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. And we covered, what was it, seven days, just what we did in that amount of time. Uh, like, Josh, kind of how you're talking about it, just looking back on it and thinking about everything we did. It's pretty insane to think about, isn't it?
2: It really is. And uh I mean, I've been fortunate, very fortunate in my short career to be able to do some really cool things. And, you know, um a lot of those shiny objects are not not based around the animal that's in my own backyard that I grew up on, the whitetail. A lot of that is, you know, western big game hunting. And I've been I've been able to do some international stuff and go after turkeys down on the Yucatan Peninsula. Pretty cool lineup of experiences and My bucket list, uh, you know, still is pretty long because I love hunting so much, but I honestly never thought I was going to have an experience based around whitetails that was going to impact me so much just because I'm, I mean, I I grew up on whitetails, still hunt whitetails, done it in a number of states and um, don't get me wrong, they still excite the hell out of me, but I just didn't think I would be a part of, um, just such a, a profound trip that would impact me so much based on white tails, just because I'm, I'm so accustomed to them. it's like, just like, oh yeah, I probably go drive down the road right now and see a deer. Um, but yeah, the, the layers upon the layers of what we got to see people we got to meet and really capture significant parts of whitetail history from a a management hunting perspective for the film that we're going to release or the two-part film was seriously going to be one of the pinnacles of my career as an outdoor communicator. I have no doubt about that. So it was really special.
1: Yeah. I mean, and myself just being a Texan, being a native Texan and uh, getting to go to places like prolific King Ranch and being on the Comanche and meeting all these figures in the Whitetail community, knowing that they're in my backyard. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it because trying to figure out the right words to communicate it all, it's been pretty tough for me. I'm not, I'm not a great wordsmith. uh, So just trying to put it all together in my head, it, like you said, it's, it's kind of the, the pinnacle. It really is. So, well, that's the beauty of uh, people who aren't familiar with the
2: production process. There there are multiple steps to it. Mm -hmm. And post production is where the most tedious, but also the most rewarding work gets done because that's what ultimately transforms into the final product that we deliver to people as uh, a viewing experience. And so, um, luckily, we have hours upon hours upon hours of really incredible vivid imagery every step of the way that I think it's going to be it's going to be nice for us selfishly because Mm -hmm. it's going to help just package everything and help us process it but the fact that we get to share it with the world and that it'll ultimately become I have no doubt it will become a, a a piece of historical significance in the whitetail story um
1: that's pretty damn cool This episode is brought to you by Matthews Archery. By far, my new favorite bow is the Matthews Lift 33. After the Phase 4, I really didn't know how much better Matthews could make their bows, especially after the new RPD system, the bridge lock. I just didn't know how they could do it, but once they sent me the lift and I put this thing in my hand and got it set to where I wanted and shot that first arrow, I was amazed. I just could not believe how dead in the hand this bow is the smooth draw and how much lighter this aluminum bow is compared to the majority of the carbon bows on the market so if you're interested in a lighter faster and quieter bow make sure you check out the matthews lift head to matthewsinc.com hunt stands make your mark podcast is brought to you by yamaha outdoors To check out Yamaha's proven lineup of side-by-sides, ATVs, and off-road vehicles, head to yamahamotorsports.com. Yeah, it is. It really is, and and we're the ones that get to tell it. Get to tell it and (laughs) uh, help communicate it to the world. So, what I want to talk about, too, aside from this film and how we're going to be launching it, we're talking probably September, early fall timeline, August, somewhere in that ballpark. We'll let people know. But... Specifically, one of the reasons we did this is just kind of bridging the gap and showing more of the whitetail world where management started and just even more and, and even just the perception that's been put on Texas um, in past years. And so one of those perceptions I want to get from you, Josh, and I want you to talk about that is how does a perception of Texas hunting different just differentiate itself for people like yourself who are non-residents where, you know, Brian, you've lived in Texas, you're, you hunted here, you've lived here, you know more about it, but just before you got to experience Texas, Josh, talk to us about that perception, you know, just especially in the context of hyphens hunting operations.
2: Well, one of the most interesting things, um, that I've kind of witnessed throughout my career that's just really been intriguing to me is, you know, I come from the Midwest. I come from Minnesota. Everybody has their, their home base. And a lot of people, frankly, never leave it. Uh, we're talking about whitetail hunters, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah, some people travel to hunt, but probably could be even proven statistically that the vast majority of people, um, they kind of just stick to their own backyard and, They might read articles or watch videos about what's going on in other areas of the country with whitetails. Um, but their foundation is based on their own experiences at home. And that was the same for me with whitetails. So when I finally started to get to travel to other places to go after these deer, um, a whole world was opened up to me. And it made me realize how narrow my viewpoint was growing up hunting in Minnesota. Hunting a particular way, um, hunting early earlier on, just hunting a certain segment of the season. Like, and when I started to hear about all these other things going on in the way that people hunted and managed deer in other parts of the country, um, some of it I thought was really cool. Some of it, some of it I thought was like odd and somewhat in, incomprehensible. Yeah, and some of it almost felt wrong. Like when we get into things like the concept of bathing, or the concept of high fences and it felt wrong to me because I had, I was totally ignorant to it all. I mean, that's, that's usually, you know, when, when something strikes you as, as being wrong, a lot of the time it's because you just don't know anything about it. It's just pure ignorance. And we are, we all are subject to that. And we all suffer from that disease of ignorance mm-hmm. and so started traveling the country. Hunting whitetails in different places. Uh, my my first trip to Texas was actually for a turkey hunt. in 2011 with some OG turkey caller who was on the Quaker Boy Pro staff. He was friends with Dick Kirby. Um, long story short, went down there with my uncles and my buddy. We turkey hunted. It was my first time hunting in Texas, and it was like it, it was it was really difficult for me to process. Um, and the turkey hunt was great, but. When we're driving around and we're seeing all these fences up everywhere and we're seeing deer everywhere just constantly and we're seeing all these exotic animals and stuff i didn't know what to think of it i was kind of turned off by it we were there to hunt turkeys we had a great turkey hunt but all this other stuff that was going on in the periphery i was just like man this is a zoo like <laughs> this is just what what do these people do down here they just yeah. they walk out to their box blind and they shoot giant bucks on command like it just (laughs) it felt so foreign to me and it felt wrong Mm -hmm. and I was turned off by it and I went home and was just like yeah I have no desire to ever go down there to do any of that stuff yeah I'll go down there to turkey hunt but the rest of that nonsense it's not my jam um and then I went and did it and I got to go deer hunt down there and I've always been of the mind that I'll try anything, almost anything once. Yeah. If it's legal and it's ethical and it doesn't make me feel overly, uh, I don't know, morally challenged, I'll usually give anything a shot because it's, usually you can't have any perspective on something unless you try it yourself. Right. And so I got invited down for a deer hunt. On that deer hunt, we were able to hunt free range, low fence deer and we were able to hunt high fence deer under the MLD program. All native Texas whitetails. There were no, no, uh, genetically. You know, there there were no uh, introduced deer or breeders or anything like that. They're all wild deer, and it really, really opened my eyes. And after that trip, I had such a good time that I decided I want to hunt Texas in some way, shape, or form every year if I possibly can. Yeah. The main reason being, uh. As I've mentioned to you guys before, one of the one of the biggest um, measurements of success for a hunter is encounters with the animal that you're after. Yeah. You know, I know that there's like this kind of bandwagon thing going on right now with having these really difficult hunts and hunting public land and grinding and and all that. And that can be really cool. Mm -hmm. But I've done that. And I actually spent a whole deer season one time hunting public land near my house where I sat 23 consecutive sits and I never saw a whitetail.
1: What?
2: And that sucked. And I don't ever want to do it again. So when I got to go to Texas and I got to actually see these animals that I was so interested in that I was after and get to learn, at least get a taste of what it really is like down there, it, it totally opened my eyes. And from that point on, I had this idea in my head as a content creator that at some point I want to help to tell that story to break down some of those mis- misconceptions as best I can. Even yeah. for people who will never be able to go down there and experience it, um, I think it's important in any community to have solidarity. And with Whitetails, it's very important because regional, local and state management practices and beliefs bleed over and it affects the whole landscape yeah. across the country. So. Doesn't matter where you're from, if there's something going on in your own backyard, it does have an impact in some way, shape or form, sometimes bigger, sometimes smaller on a, on a larger scale mm-hmm. nationally or maybe even North America. So I wanted to have a small contribution and just showing people, hey, this whole Texas thing is there's a lot more than meets the eye. And the most the, the easiest focal point is the fence aspect of it it's really hard to wrap your mind around that if you're from somewhere where there's no such thing as a high fence. You've never seen one in your life. Mm-hmm. A lot of people immediately assume that those are pen raised non-native potentially uh, or non-wild at least deer yeah. that are technically farm animals. A lot of people automatically associate a fence, a high fence with that. And that that is so far from the truth. So um, I'm going to let you guys jump in here, but that's kind of the that's kind of where all this came from and where my background was on it and and really the genesis of this project which ended up getting built even bigger because of brian's experience and connections and then add on top of that will you being uh, able to come along on the trip as a native to give your perspective and then spencer our uh, <laughs> yeah. digital marketing guy he came down from canada to give an entirely different perspective um it was really the full circle to, to be able to
1: capture. Speaking of perspectives, talking on the, the high fence part. And I experienced this the first time I went to go hunt on a media hunt in Ohio last year. I was talking to one of the guys there and we were talking about Texas a little bit. I was like, yeah, there's uh, the property I hunt, it's a mixture of high fence and low fence. And he's like, what, what are you talking about? Like high fence. And they're like, what's, what's a low fence. So like, it's, it's always interesting. You know, obviously i talked about it more with him, but it's just always interesting to get different perspectives on hunting. And so that's where I kind of want to get into your perspective, Brian, because, you know, you cut your teeth down here. You cut your teeth in South Texas. I mean, kind of all, all across the state. Um, you've cut your teeth in Australia. I mean, like you spent a lot of time in different places and you went from Texas to Australia across the world. And then you ended up back in Georgia. And so, I'm interested to know being a Texan and like the perspective I have, it's, it's normal for me. So I don't see it from the window that Josh does. But knowing that you were here and now have left it, but come back to visit occasionally, has your perspective stayed the same or has it changed at all? It's, that's, a great,
3: that's a great question because I hadn't really thought about it personally in that vein. Certainly growing up as a as a mostly native Texan, particularly a young, young hunter, shot my first deer in East Texas, the old piney mm-hmm. woods of East Texas. Um, then went to school out in West Texas in Lubbock, worked in the Hill Country, which is considered kind of the exotic high-density capital of, of the state of Texas, and then also working on projects in South Texas. So mm-hmm. I have bounced around a lot of the state. Certainly as a Texan, I was certainly more indoctrinated into things like you know, feeders and high fences, they're, you know, a lot of who you are as a hunter is the product of your own upbringing and your own culture. However, as a, as a trained wildlife biologist, you know, we, we're we taught to question certain things, yeah. um, not necessarily make, a, make an opinion on them, but just be, be have honest, open discussion. And 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 my personal belief is that things like feeders, things like high fences, heck, things like food plots, things like trail cameras, they're all tools and they can all be abused. Uh, They can all be used effectively for a free range hunting opportunity. They can all be abused. And when you come to high fences, you know, I certainly draw a line. I don't have a magical, you know, acreage that all of a sudden it becomes free chase in my own mind, but I can, I can assure you if you, you know, take the average hunter into a 10 or 20,000 acre high fence area, you can't see the fence for 10 miles in any direction. That's pretty fair chase for 98% of hunters in America. Yeah, But at some point we all agree. Um, that you know a ten acre, twenty acre, fifty acre high fence is a pen, you know. Whereas that 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 continuum is going to be a little bit different for everybody, and a lot of it's how the deer are managed inside the enclosure. Um, you know, one thing that is worth keeping in mind, and a friend of mine did an analysis a few years ago of of the properties, the deer hunting properties in South Texas, and at that time, this was a handful of years ago. It might be a little higher now. Uh, only around fifteen percent of all the acres in in the entire southern half of Texas that are deer hunted are high fenced. So we're still talking about you know eighty plus percent of properties that are not high fenced. Uh, in many of those cases, you know some of the best managed deer herds I've ever seen have been inside high fences. They manage deer density and habitat better in many cases mm-hmm. than those on the outside. Sometimes the high fence is meant more to keep deer out than to keep deer in.
1: Yeah,
3: because they're trying. So there's a lot of motivations, and certainly there are situations in Texas where you know individuals have brought in breeder deer and other things to augment their, their genetics and have, you know, 400 inch whitetails. certainly not my jam personally. Um, I would rather do all of, of what nature can provide and be happy if that's 150 inch deer, 130 inch deer. Uh, I don't have to personally see a 400 inch deer to make me happy. If I know that deer was not a product of natural processes uh, and man, you know, man's efforts and habitat, not in uh, an artificial lab setting, but that's my personal preference. Yeah. Um, you know, Another thing that I think is worth pointing out is while we focused on South Texas, Texas is, you know, at least five different states in itself. Yeah. Uh, you know, East, you know, Southeast Texas, where we were with our brothers, we had the, you know, the oak, savannah sort of mixed brush, a little bit of South Texas flavor. And then we were down in South Central Texas, you know, pretty hard country, but not true, the Golden Triangle. And then we went over to the Comanche on the Mexico border and saw what true South Texas, just hard brush country, low rainfall looks like but all you have to do is go to East Texas, the Piney Woods. Um, that looks like where I am in Georgia. Yeah. North Texas, it looks different again. It looks like Oklahoma to me. Uh, you go to West Texas, you got mule deer and pronghorn out there, big landscapes. You, you know, so go to South Texas, go well, go to the hill country where you are in Fredericksburg area and got a lot of exotics and and super high deer populations. Um, and you go to South Texas and thankfully as a rule, most of South Texas is, is largely free of exotics. Yeah. Um, not that there's not some. There's Neil guy antelope. There's hogs. There's there's some exotic, you know, other ungulates there that have been brought in. But for the most part, most of South Texas is still managed strictly for whitetail deer. You know, as its primary big game focus. And they're not, in my opinion, monkeying it up with a bunch of other critters. Mm-hmm. They're keeping kind of a pure South Texas whitetail play. And I applaud that. And and we got to experience that. And you know, of the ranches we we frequented, we hunted hunted three ranches. Um, you know, sorry, one, two, three, was it four inches. I can't, I can't get them all straight in my, my mind sometimes, but, uh, you know, the, we did hunt one high fence place. We wanted that experience. Um, and, and funny enough, we actually struggled there the hardest to get a deer <laughs> yeah. done on camera. We had to do it on the last hour of the last morning. Yeah. yeah. And yet, you know, on our big low fence place, um, we got it done in the first afternoon. So, you know, the fact that it's not always a slam dunk, whether you got a fence or not, um, deer can be deer. And you know, so a lot of it's how the properties are managed. But you know, we a lot of people think of the the King Ranch, don't know anything about it other than the logo on a truck in their neighborhood. And you know, that's eight hundred twenty five thousand acres, almost all of which is not high fenced. Uh, They got a few little sections that are in a few leases, but the vast majority of the King Ranch is is what we call low fenced or cattle fenced, uh, but not a an enclosure. Uh, So again, a lot of these ranches are still you know not high fenced and and manage for wild deer. So there's still you can have any experience you want in South Texas. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. You know, you if 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 you want to hunt free range and 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 rattle in the brush country on big acreage on low fence scenarios, you can do it. If you want to hunt a high fence and and, and you know have a, a, a different experience, you can do that too. So Texans are big private property rights folks. Uh, yeah, that's why <laughs> that's why the MLD program is so advanced there, if you want to call it advanced, so liberal. In what it allows based on the level of involvement and for those that may not know what that little acronym stands for it's the managed lands deer program or permit program it's the state's version of what we call dmap in other other states but it's more involved and so you know under the highest levels we you can hunt bucks and does with firearms during archery season you can get extended seasons to shoot does and bucks in some cases you get bucks that don't count against your your tags on your license. So there's a lot of flexibility because landowners in Texas want it. Um, but they also have to then be a true partner with Texas Parks and Wildlife and provide data, surveys, and, you know, collect, collect data. So it's a it's a partnership. And uh, they've they've worked out a system that works very well for Texas.
1: That's very true. I mean, heck, I've, I've still got a place not far from here that a good friend of mine manages. It's an MLD property. So I'm actually going to go out there once next week and try and help him out a little bit. So aside from all that information, you know, just kind of knowing from, I want to come back to the question, you know, kind of like you being here and leaving, but coming back occasionally, has anything changed on your viewpoint of Texas or is it, has it remained consistent through all these years?
3: Yeah, certainly the one, the one concern, you know, just personally uh, is, is the sort of increased uh, liberating of, of non-native deer yeah. uh, into the landscape and, and for disease concerns and a number yep. of other things. And also it I guess it concerns me as a hunter that, you know, at one point, you know, 150-inch white tail low fence free range was considered a, a, a very large deer. And it still is a very big deer by any standard mm-hmm. in America. Don't get me wrong. But now those are almost looked at as you know secondary in a lot of areas because of some of these breeder deer and some of the manipulation so again, it's each their own. It's legal. Um, if that's your your jam, so be it. Um, again, I'm a biologist. I'm pretty conservative in my outlook on a lot of things, and but I would say I'm I'm pretty balanced compared to a lot of biologists that that, you know, that have even greater concerns over a high fence or a feeder or any right. of these other practices. Uh, but that's that's probably the most concerning thing of coming back. You know, twenty. You know, looking over a thirty or forty year time horizon. We're seeing increased liberalization of or liberation rather of non-native white tails, but also almost an increasing endless supply of exotics. To at some point, the landscape can only hold so many different types of critters, yeah. and uh, do it in a healthy way. To where the, the the habitat, you know, the habitat's the focus. If the habitat's mm-hmm. in good shape, you know, I'm I'm I can live with some exotics on the landscape if they're managing their their overall populations of of critters on the because the habitat's the key. Yeah. Uh, and and one thing that, you know, we also saw a lot over things like javelinas and caracaras, the Mexican eagles and quail and you know, jackrabbits and you know, bobcats and coyotes. I mean, you get to see some things that are just really cool South Texas landscape stuff. And, you know, and Josh alluded to it earlier, you owe it to yourself at least once to go to South Texas, go on a well-managed ranch. When I say well managed, I don't mean necessarily high fenced or fed. I'm talking about age structure. But you have a chance to go out and see, you know, half a dozen bucks over four or five years of age in one sitting yeah. and see what adult bucks do. You know, my daughter loves hunting in South Texas because she said, Dad, I learned more about how to age and judge in an afternoon or two here than I can learn in a season hunting with you in Georgia. So, uh, because, you know, she can see 10 bucks in a night. You know, we're not shooting them all. It's very selective ranches we go to. So you don't get to shoot them all, but you get to watch. And and Josh, you know, you, you had an experience on your very first hunt. In South Texas, that you haven't had in your entire career, that you got to film, and I'll let you share that with the group because that that's the, that's an example of what you might encounter encounter if you if you uh, treat yourself to a trip down south.
2: Yeah, the very first ranch that we were on, Charlie De Young's, uh, that was the the high fence place, um, very well managed. Again, I can't I can't reiterate enough, native deer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nothing nothing introduced there. And uh me and Will hunted with a camera on that part of the trip. Um, our man Spencer was the only one actually hunting with a rifle, but we hunted with cameras, so we got to go out and just sit in blinds and watch deer and like Brian said, javelinas and some other critters that were out there. And uh I've been deer hunting now. Um, well, if you count the years where I, I deer hunted without a weapon, where I just had to sit in a tree stand and, and learn the ropes from my uncles, it's not nearly as long as Brian, but it's been, uh, it's been a solid, you know, 24, 25 years now. And I had never seen a buck fight. I've seen deer spar and I've seen them tickle antlers and I've heard a fight, but I've never seen one. And I was fortunate to see, uh, a pretty legit brawl between two gorgeous bucks. And I'd been filming deer that whole evening. And, uh, I'd been filming everything in 24 frames a second, which a lot of people listening probably are like, well, what does that mean? Well, that's just standard speed video. Uh, For whatever reason, when I saw these two bucks, I was like, oh, I should get some slow-mo footage. Um, I haven't really gotten any cool slow-mo yet, so I I flipped the camera over to 120 frames per second. that's what allows you to slow the video down without it having a bunch of jerky, herky, you know, skipping look to it. It just gives it that smooth, clean look. That's how you shoot slow-mo, is a high frame rate and I flipped it over to the high frame rate, having no idea that these deer were about to throw down. They weren't, I, I couldn't tell by their body language or anything no. at that point that they're bristling up. I wasn't preparing for it. I just got lucky. I hit record in 120 frames per second. The one buck starts sidestepping toward the other one. They both bristle up, their hair stands on end and, and they just go at it. So, I mean, i have been around quite a few deer, but uh, I'd never got to see a buck fight a legit buck fight like that. And here I am in South Texas and boom, I get to see it. I believe it was the first evening. Was. Yeah.
1: Muddy Outdoors is a brand that's been around for quite some time now at Muddy. They recognize that the essence of a hunter transcends seasons where their gear is crafted to support the relentless spirit of the hunter year round for Muddy. Hunting is not just a seasonal pursuit. It's a constant. And I, for one, definitely resonate with this and this past year I got some new muddy box blinds that have been game changers for us down here in Texas and I've been running muddy tree stands for as long as I can remember so if you're interested in learning more about muddy head to gomuddy.com one of my favorite knives that I used this past fall from the deer woods in Kansas all the way up to the elk mountains of Colorado was SOG's Ether FX it's lightweight and compact design plus heavyweight blade quality made for the perfect knife for every use that I put it through this fall. I took it on every adventure and if you're in the market for looking for that same lightweight, compact, durable knife that is going to do anything and everything you need it to, highly suggest you check out SOG's Ether FX. To do that, head to sogknives.com. And if you'd like a discount on the SOG Ether FX, use discount code HUNTSTAND10 when you're checking out. I wanna take a quick second to talk to y'all about Stealth Cam and their all new trail cameras, new for 2024. And the one that I specifically wanna talk to y'all about is the brand new Revolver Pro. This is a 360 degree cellular trail camera. The Revolver Pro is a game changer. The power of six cameras and one sleek, innovative design allows you to cover more ground capture more detail, and never miss the action again. Discover the future of outdoor surveillance with Stealth Cam's 2024 lineup of cellular trail cameras. To learn more, head to stealthcam.com. And if you'd like a 10% discount on the Stealth Cam website when checking out, use code HUNTSTAN10. We've got that discount code along with many more of our partners down below in the show notes. That was that's pretty sick when I were that reels up on socials now but whenever i went back and uh i was looking at that kind of putting it together yeah you had you had no idea that they're about to fight because they were both looking in your direction and then it was like one whispered at the other he's like hey said some crap to him and the other one just turned around it was just (laughs) like boom boom dirt snot flying rocks kicked up it was pretty freaking awesome that so, was great. I can't wait to yeah. see it in the film. Yeah,
3: and you know, and and beyond things like you know the chance to maybe see a fight or a buck breed a doe. Um, last friend of mine up hunting Charlie's yeah. Ranch with me the year before last year. You know, he watched a, a buck breed a doe at twenty yards right in front of him off a stand. You know, a, a few hundred yards from where Spencer ended up taking his buck. Yeah. You know, those are those are great. But more more often, what you are going to see is a lot of buck behavior, posturing, and mm-hmm. and and you can start to see. The language of deer through vocalizations and body posture. You become a student of of their language if you watch enough adult bucks working and interacting with each other, things you just cannot see in most areas of the country. Yeah. And that's a treat. If you're out there to enjoy deer, I mean, you you know, that's what I enjoy more than actual hunting is, is just watching deer be what do what deer do in a yes. natural managed age structure that doesn't exist in, in a lot of the whitetails range. Uh, And to do it on people's ranches like charlie's who's again professor emeritus one of the most famous deer researchers of our time al brothers the founder of all this to actually do this on their ranches um you know that's that gives it special memory and um you know we made it over to al's ranch and it it's a small ranch it's three or four hundred acres that he's cobbled together with boot leather and you know uh, you know he's a working man he's a biologist Um, he's not a, a wealthy south texas land baron. Uh, so he's put his 300 odd acres together over, you know, 30 years and um, didn't have, you know, by the time we got there, it was late in the season. He didn't have any mm-hmm. any spare bucks for us to hunt. And we were happy just to stay in his camp, which uh, he lovingly calls the half moon camp. Yes. Because if you've ever had, a, had the good fortune of the old days when we used outhouses, most outhouses had a quarter moon cut in them for light. So you could have some light while you're doing your business. Well, he mm-hmm. figured his camp was at least half again as good as a, an outhouse. Um, but we've all stayed in some beautiful lodges this was not what i would call you know the the taj mahal of lodges but you know what i loved it every bit as yes. much as any any big place i've ever set foot on in my life because that's Al brother's place and there's Al brother's plaques that he's earned from all his co- conservation accomplishments dating back to texas ranger days and you know awards for his work and just fundamentally changing what we know and we got to spend Two great evenings, hearing his stories over a fifty-year span of how this, how hard it was for him to convince people in the '60s and '70s that we should be managing deer herds and harvesting does and managing habitat—things we take for granted today. Yeah. You know, he was the one. He was the guy who started this whole conversation, and uh, you know. And then Josh had a chance to actually hunt in Al's personal blind. He's, it's his ranch, all of them are his blinds, but he has one blind that he calls his blind. And, uh, you know, Josh was able to actually achieve something there. That was pretty cool, Josh.
2: Yeah, I, uh, (laughs) I've had, when it comes to a few different critters, bobcats and wolves, um, I've been in a lot of places where they are. And I, I've only seen, uh, two mature bobcats. One time when I was hunting down with, uh, down in alabama with brian two bobcats that were actually fighting in the road on our way out which was really cool and i I saw uh, a couple bobcat kittens um one time in northern wisconsin crossing the road and i think i may have seen one one time in my headlights in northwestern colorado but i've never seen one while i've been hunting let alone while i had the ability to to take one mm-hmm. and so we went out there with the e-caller and sat in Al's blind, me and Will, and uh, hoping to just maybe get a crack at a coyote. And next thing you know, I look up after about what forty-five minutes or something, running this e-collar, and there's a bobcat standing there. And so I, I center punched him, and um, it was actually a female, and ended up uh, being able to harvest a bobcat out of Al Brothers' personal deer blind, which was
3: just wild. Yeah. Those, those are those are those are those yeah. life experiences, and you know i shared before we got there with with uh, with you and with will that this place had a lot of bobcats it has a history of it I, my daughter's taken one there uh as well and i've seen a few and i said if if we go out with a collar you got about a 50 50 chance if we if we can go out twice or three times you got, you got you got a good chance first time you and i went out we didn't do anything but called up a, a hawk or something <laughs> Uh, this and then on your second hunt, so it was a 50-50 proposition. You got one on the second attempt with come <laughs> over, which was which was pretty cool. Uh, and and you know you get you got you, you guys both saw some mature bucks. This is low fence on three hundred acres, yeah. and you saw some beautiful mature bucks that he's got. Um, so he's done a great job building the neighborhood cooperative. He's part of what they call a wildlife association in Texas. We call them wildlife co-ops. Our QDM co-ops in other parts yeah. of the country, basically landowners and hunters working together, trying to improve what they have. And uh, where Al is in East Southeast Texas, they have smaller landscapes. I mean, a 300 acre ranch is a pretty good size ranch. Yeah, um, they're not all thousands of acres like South Texas or many of them, at least. Uh, so that was that was really special. And you know, something else that's uniquely South Texas that uh, that that Josh, you and our cameraman got to experience is back at uh, our first stop at Charlie's Ranch. Um, had my good friend Mickey Hellickson, the consultant from South Texas. Uh, he scheduled. He uh, he does a lot of helicopter surveys for about eighty clients in South Texas. They survey the deer herd with helicopters. That's a very effective way to count deer and so forth. And uh, he was uh, you know uh, willing to coordinate an, an existing client survey with our stop down there. So when he finished flying a neighboring ranch, he uh, he literally just flew over the hill and landed the chopper right there in front of uh, our group and. And and that's kind of a wow factor. When 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 your friend comes in on a helicopter, it kind of gives a little different entrance effect than the average guy that shows up at hunting camp. And uh, you know, I saw your eyes, yours, and, and Logan's getting in that chopper. And then particularly when I saw the smile that I couldn't wash off either of your face when you got out. Um, I said, Yeah, they've had the helicopter experience until you've done something like that chasing deer and javelinas and you saw bobcats and coyotes and all kinds of stuff. And uh, it gives you a different perspective of, of the landscape. And uh, so there's a lot of things that are uniquely Texas that are just downright fun, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Again, as a hunter, yell it to yourself to give it a shot one time, just to say, I've done it. And again, pick your own experience, what, what you're looking for. Um, try to go down there in, in December, if you can, or January during the, the rut part of the year, bring you a saddle rattling antlers and go out and rattle Things you just can't do in most of the whitetails' range consistently. You'll occasionally get bucks up in a lot of areas rattling. I get it. But you can't go out and get 10, 12 bucks in a day like you can on some of these South Texas ranches, you know. And when having a slobbering five-year-old 140-inch buck almost run you over in the brush pile, you know, that's pretty dang cool. I don't care who you are. That's a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. You know, I kind of want to come back to the perception concept that – or not concept, but just the perception side of things that we've started this conversation out. Where do y'all feel like essentially the negative connotation perception on South Texas came from? Do y'all believe it came from television, more or less socials in the past decade or so? Because I was uh, I started reading Al's book. I picked that picked up a second edition on eBay, and one of the coolest things that I found in the beginning of this was uh, he had a game warden uh write a little excerpt at the beginning and he was talking about how people from out of the states would come down and i mean this was kind of before trespassing i guess before gates became a thing like people would just pull up and hunt anywhere and um it was was almost like they just treated it like public land almost before i mean this is long before the days of the high fences and everything but where do y'all think this perception has come from
2: So I think a good comparison to draw, and Brian brought this up earlier, which is really important. Like we talk about Texas and Texas is probably, I'd have to imagine the most diverse state from a landscape perspective, like an ecoregion perspective, and um, maybe even with wildlife diversity, well, almost certainly with wildlife diversity, um, if you include exotics, which aren't aren't native wildlife, but they're still wildlife, but we say Texas, just like we say, Africa, when people talk about hunting in Africa, dude, Africa is a continent, like with multiple countries, with multiple regions within those countries and people are like, yeah, I'm going to hunt Africa. It's like, well, I mean, that's a, that's a big, big place with a lot of differences, you know, that's a big word. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, very generalized. And, um, I've been to South Africa, which is just one little blip of Africa, but it's, it's one of the most popular places to go to hunt because it's, it's a stable region and, um, really it's, it's so colonized that, uh, it's, it feels a lot like Texas. In fact, if you were to blindfold me and throw me out somewhere in South Africa, I would think that you just dropped me in, in a part of Texas. It's so similar. Um, but my point is, uh, people like to draw large generalities and even with what we were just talking about with you know the difference between going from charlie's ranch to al's ranch back to my ignorance of the whole texas thing for for, to begin with i didn't know there were like little hunting camps in texas i didn't know that there were like smaller family ranches like like your family has will in Mm -hmm. texas like um even after i had been down there a few times Um, I still wasn't awakened to that, honestly, Will, until I met you, like when you started talking about this ranch, I was like, I had this vision in my head of what it was. And I realized it's really just like my family's property in Minnesota. Like it's your, it's your family farm. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think of Texas from that perspective. So I think uh, certainly outdoor media plays a role. Um, I mean, the things that you've seen covered for decades coming out of Texas are senderos and corn feeders and high numbers of deer and guys shooting big deer, which by the way, oftentimes from an antler perspective, um, are not big deer. Uh, they're, they're what we refer to in the industry and the filming side often as TV deer. Texas is a really good place to shoot TV deer because a lot of the, deer in texas have small bodies so it makes them look like a booner if they're 130 inches yeah. even if they're 125 120 inches they look huge yeah so i think it's uh partially the fault of the industry itself just by, by the way that we've depicted it um almost making it look like a zoo and then uh, a lot of it just comes down to people not willing to put in the time to have a real authentic knowledge and understanding of of what it is and um it's it's easy to fall into that camp because we all want to we all want to have quick answers especially in today's day and age like everybody wants they want the answer they want to have a conclusion and they want to they want to be on one side or the other of something right now you want you you want to know like what team am i on there's no like there's no debating there's no there's no research it's just like i want to have an opinion and By the way, a lot of people really want to have a loud opinion um, hiding behind their keyboards on social media. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a combination of things that um, has caused some, might be a little extreme, but demonization of deer hunting in Texas. But like Brian just covered really well, holy shit, if you like to have fun as a deer hunter, because deer hunting is supposed to be fun, and we seem to forget that nowadays, you're going to have a, heck of a lot of fun in texas uh south texas or not i mean anywhere you go down there where there's a healthy number of deer you're probably gonna have a lot of fun and that's pretty important
1: brian go ahead do you feel that some of the demonization i guess of texas also comes from a lot of the exotics that have kind of blown up i'd say probably the past 10 to 20 years in addition to um I hate calling out, but, you know, just kind of the deer breeders. Do you feel like that's part of it as well?
3: Yeah, certainly there's, that's a contributing factor. I mean, you know, it looks some parts of Texas, again, not all of Texas, that's a big generalization. Yeah. Particularly in the hill country and and northern South Texas, you know, you're seeing a lot of exotics more than ever. And and, and so there's places that do look like Africa uh, with with as many species (laughs) and sometimes more. Uh, So certainly that's part of it. Part of it is the fact also that, you know, Texas can spoil you. You know, yes. if you've got a great honey hole that you can catch 50 trout, you kind of get spoiled on, you know, going out and catching 50 trout or walleye. You know, if you go to some of these places, a lot of them can be large. Some of them can be well-managed, many of them are. It's where you you can see a lot of adult bucks, so it can spoil you mm-hmm. um, and it can appear easy. But what they've done is just raise the bar on what you can take in many cases to where you still have a hard time finding that one deer you're after, but you may be seeing a lot more bucks than you'd ever see anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's a lot of reasons for it, certainly, but you know, just as, an, as as Josh pointed out, you know, he was a little bit taken aback that there's still a lot of little bitty ranches mm-hmm. and little farms, and and fragmentation is the biggest risk. If you ask Al Brothers, which we did, what the biggest risk to the future of deer hunting in Texas is, it's fragmentation of land, and so ranches are getting smaller, not bigger. Yeah, uh, his ranch, uh, Al's personal ranch, again, 300 odd acres. You know, I wanted to take you to that real world situation of a blue collar biologist. Mm-hmm. The small, un, you know, low fenced ranch, and then and then kind of compare that with the King Ranch, that's one of the biggest in the in the state at eight hundred and twenty five thousand. Then also to another big ranch, the Comanche, which was one hundred and thirteen thousand, and and just kind of give you, there's a lot of variation. And I did the quick math here, and we could fit three hundred and fifty three Al Brothers ranches just into the Comanche ranch. And the Comanche ranch <laughs> is one eighth the size of the King Ranch. Uh, so yeah. so scale is important to keep in mind here mm-hmm. and the average hunter in 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 Texas hunts a small ranch they don't hunt the big stuff i mean that's expensive you know it's expensive yeah. even by texas standards to 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 lease you know a 10,000 20,000 acre ranch so my nephew is a good example he lives in the dallas area he's a working guy you know he does all he can to scratch out a little lease in in the northern hill country that's, you know, 600 acre little family farm that he le- helps lease with some guys and they do all they can on. And, you know, he's not hunting South Texas. He's not hunting the King Ranch. I mean, that's a, those are special places that very few people get to go to.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, so, again, huge variation. Um, East Texas is is traditional hunt club country. That's kind of the old a lot of the timber industry still owns a lot of the pine forests in East Texas and lease out, you know, 300 600 1000 acres to hunting clubs it's old school hunt clubs it would be no different than Louisiana Mississippi Alabama Georgia North Carolina any of that part of the world all kind of feels the same so again when you say i'm going to texas to hunt you got to be real specific yeah. if if we're going if we're going to communicate on on comparable terms you got to say what part of texas what kind of ha- area am i going to hunt what caliber of deer am i expecting i mean there's a lot of minutia there that that, that changes the, the the conversation considerably For sure.
1: I was waiting for you to say that word. That's my favorite word that you have is minutia. I've been using it a lot, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, it's yes to all above. True on everything you've been saying. And I know we're getting close on time here. And so to kind of wrap this podcast up, I want to talk to both y'all and get your thoughts on, I know what mine are um, when it comes to this film that's coming out the thing I love about getting people who have never come to Texas that had that perception before they came is seeing how it's changed. They understand and they want to come back. Like I've got a good friend, Dan Staten. Um, he came down South Texas. He had this perception of, Oh man, I'm going to hunt on a zoo. Uh, we're going to be done in the first 10 minutes. And it was a high fence ranch similar to Charlie's place. And it took him four days to kill a deer with a bow. Um, and afterwards, he's just been itchy trigger finger, wanting to come back down here every year. And so, knowing that, knowing what we did, I want to hear from both y'all. What are you hoping the viewer is going to get out of this two-part film that we put? That's getting
3: put together. Well, I'll start as a as a you know I'd say a hybrid native Texan. Now, I spend as much of my life outside of Texas as in 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 the state one i hope they'll gain an appreciation for the complexity and diversity of texas Uh, secondly i hope they'll if they don't already have an open mind that they'll form one that they'll 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 not make rash decisions or judgments on any of that until they've experienced it themselves uh you owe it to yourself as josh pointed out to learn about something before you pass judgment so those are those are the two take homes i would have and i'll make one final point too you know if you're hunting native south texas genetics which is the vast majority of the places there you know even in the very best parts of south texas the golden triangles it's called and we got to be in in the golden triangle on the comanche ranch uh, a number of research projects have been done over the years by texas a m kingsville researchers which we got to meet and tour their facility uh, they've done a number of studies and believe it or not the average fully mature i'm talking about five to seven year old white bucks in the best part of south texas so this is the best of the best, five, seven, five six, and seven-year-old bucks. The average gross Boone Crockett score is 126 to 132 inches. That blows people's minds. Really? If we had this, if we had the landscape wow. of South Texas, 100,000 acres or 10,000 acres in Iowa, or heck, pick almost any other state in the country, our deer on average would be bigger than South Texas deer, on average. How do they get giant bucks that look like the Mui Grande? They grow a lot of old bucks. Uh, but but you know, Josh and Will, you were part of a, a fun little you know after hunt we had on the Comanche <laughs> after you guys were successful, you know, and we went for the lowest score and fully mature bucks. We had a little kind of uh, you know management buck competition, and we were looking for over-the-hill bucks that scored under a hundred inches. The muy you think, pequeño how, contesto. Yeah. I mean, how could you how could you guys go out and find fully mature bucks under hundred inches gross Boone and crockett score? And we did. We shot, you know, four, four or five of them, I guess. Um, and 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 that's part of the process too. You get to go down there and, and hunt some of these bucks with jaw bones. As a biologist, you know, I had one that had no almost no teeth left. That's as much of a trophy set of antlers as any I'll ever own, because you shoot a 10, 12 year old buck, free range deer, this the stories that buck could tell you and with mountain lions in that country and mm-hmm. and all that. be on the Mexico border, all the illegal, you know, migrants coming across that they're seeing just the stories, you know, that that's cool to me. And I did something I have never done. I always wanted to do. I shot a big six pointer and I was excited. I shot a 135 inch six pointer, um, you know, 27 inch main beams and nine inch brow tines. And yet he was old as the hills and I had to stalk and belly crawl. Within two hundred and some odd yards, this was not a you know an easy stuff. We spotted him for five hundred yards and had to belly crawl on a dirt road and shoot prone off the ground at distance. So that was a heck of a hunt, a heck of a trophy. Mm-hmm. Uh so there's all kinds of experiences other than just coming down and and you know, shooting you a big a big buck. I mean, it's it's the whole package. Absolutely. Josh, how
1: about you, man? What what are you hoping that folks are gonna get out of this once they get to see what went down over that? period of time?
2: Man, Brian summed it up pretty well, but I guess to sort of mirror that, to close this thing out, um, the biggest thing I want, the biggest takeaway that I want is, uh, yeah, it is, the the storyline is heavily focused around South Texas and then, you know, the implications of the research and the management and the culture that has come out of there that has influenced other parts of the country, et cetera. But um if you look at the whitetails range there are different ends of the spectrum and texas is on one of them you know it's compared to where i'm at like up in minnesota in the midwest it's high contrast big mm-hmm. time and you know it is a whole range and it's not it's not uh it's not a perfect line from north to south or east to west it's you know it could even be within different states there's there's different styles of hunting and um management practices etc but i think the most important thing for people to take away is looking at this as the highest contrast and saying wow what am i missing even if it's not a matter of going to texas or south texas what what am i missing out on that might even be just in the state next door to me or it might be in a different part of my own state yeah um, you know if you really like whitetails and you enjoy whitetail hunting there's a, there's probably a lot more going on and a lot more to experience than what you just have that you're used to. And, uh, if that motivates you at all, then get out there and check it out. And this, this is really, uh, a, a glaring picture of what that could be like. It is on the far end of the spectrum, but there's a whole world of opportunity out there. And hopefully, uh, we can get past some of the things that are, are challenging white tails right now, um, from, a, biological perspective and a, a cultural social perspective and uh keep this thing alive so that people can be doing it
1: for you well know, till the tell the earth gets burned up by the sun i guess or another meteor comes down and hits us like it did right. the dinosaurs <laughs> till the next ice age yeah well guys appreciate your time today always love podcasting with you too and uh i know we'll get to do it again I want to give a shout out to some of our fine sponsors and supporting Hunt Stand's Make Your Mark podcast. To start it off, I want to thank Hawk Hunting, Hunt from Above, Tenzig Outdoors, Go Further, Hunt Longer, True Globe, When Brightness Counts, Halo Optics, Hunting Success Magnified, Avian X, Unmatched Quality, Zinc, A Champion in Every Call, Boss Buck, The Most Versatile and User Friendly Feeders on the Market. Evolved, reap what you sow. Cyclops Lighting Solutions, get out of the dark. New Archery Products, whatever your broadhead preference, NAP has you covered. And finally, Bloodsport, the bleeding edge of archery. To get a discount on products from the featured partners of Huntstand's Make Your Mark podcast, enter code huntstand 10 during the checkout process. I'll have all these partners website links listed down in the show notes below.